Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Buker and Friends podcast. Here is your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buker. Rick Buker. Welcome to another episode of Buker Friendless, subsidiary of Buker and Friends, part of the United Wecast Network. I'm Rick Buker. You can see me on FS1. You can read me on Bleacher Report. You can follow me on Twitter at Rick Buker and on Instagram at Rick underscore Buker. Number of things I want to get to, but uh, and I wasn't planning on starting with this, but I am just because of the uh, attention that it has drawn uh, since uh, training camps, NBA training camps have opened, and that is it actually happened started started gaining attention beforehand, but it's become a subject now, and that is uh, James Harden's uh, one-footed shot from three-point range. The attention began when we started seeing videos of him taking it in pickup games, and then we saw him take it and miss in the game against uh, the Shanghai Sharks. And the reaction has been, oh no, what are we going to do? Look, this is what, again, this is what I struggle with. Uh, And a, a lot of this podcast is going to be about what things I struggle with when we cover. Uh, basketball in general and the NBA in particular. It just feels as if we don't, uh, the intelligence level and how we cover it and what we, how we, how we parse the game uh, for all of the analytics and the deeper thinking that goes into it and the navel gazing and the microanalysis, it often feels as if we're dumber in the way we react to things. And maybe that's just me and looking at the reaction on social media and the echo chamber and things all seem louder. Uh, And maybe that's my mistake in interpreting that as the width and breadth of how people are looking and covering, looking at and covering the league. But nonetheless, all this excitement, hysteria over James Harden's one footed shot, it just mystifies me as if this is some new new secret weapon. First of all, it's about as fundamentally unsound as a shot can be. And people have said, so what do we call it? You know what we should call it? We should call it a, a wrong-footed three-point runner because that's what it is. He's left-handed. He's going off his left foot. And it makes it sound exotic. And it also makes it sound like something that you shouldn't try on a regular basis. <laughs> both, both of which are accurate descriptions of that shot. It might just be, you know, people have talked about Harden being selfish. I don't know that he's selfish, but the 50 dribbles, rocking into a shot, dominating the shot clock, no ball movement. For all of that, this might be the most selfish shot created because once he plants that left foot, he's rising up and he's taking the shot. There are no other options at that stage from three-point range. It's all but a desperation pass. uh, And why would you have multiple guys running out at a guy taking that shot? So it's not as if you're going to leave the roller we're going to leave somebody cutting to the basket. 
or that he's necessarily going to be rising up in the air off one foot looking for a pass. He's going to have to be focused on the rim. So he's not coming back down. And as for the shot itself, look, getting on balance is still an important part of the equation, especially the farther away you are from the basket. And get being on balance, going off of one foot, is going to be infinitely harder than going off of two. Never mind that the way he's taking it is generally, from the ones that I've seen, is he's driving toward the corner, pivots, rises, and shoots. So now he's got the challenge of getting square to the basket and taking that shot. And then there's the, the, the whole dynamics of the energy, the lift with which he's, he's, he's rising up. There's just way too many moving parts. It's like seeing Meadowlark Lemon uh, hook shot from midcourt when I was a kid with the Harlem Globetrotters. And if the media would have looked at that and said, oh, what, what do we do now? What, what, what are we gonna, that's indefensible. Yeah, you're right. It's indefensible. Hook shot from midcourt is indefensible. How are you ever going to defend that? You're not. It's going to defend itself. You're not going to take that on a regular basis. And so get back to me when Harden is hitting those one-footed, wrong-footed runners from three-point range at a clip better than 40%. Get back to me when he's taking and making those to win games on a regular basis. And look, I, I get that the shot is intriguing because we haven't seen anybody take it, but there's a reason for that because it's not a fundamentally sound shot. Aside from that, guys have been adding range and I don't know that anybody's invented a new shot necessarily. There's different forms on jump shots. Steph Curry's jump shot is a bit unique, which is what allows him to shoot it and shoot it so well from range, but he's not reinventing anything. And even hardened shots, not necessarily new. It's just nobody's ever thought of taking it beyond 10, 12 feet. Again, for a reason. He, it, it's, it's intriguing because he'll always be able to get that shot off. So, but it limits the, the, the shot itself has to be, ultimately has to be successful. And I'm not a anticipating uh, that it that it will be uh second of all i want to apologize for not fulfilling a promise i made via twitter before the last podcast with ryan hollins uh, a listener was hearing me throw shade on how loosely we use the word expert or analyst when it comes to describing media members who write or talk about the nba in a podcast a couple podcasts ago a couple episodes ago and asked for me to elaborate as in what I believe are the requirements for someone to be regarded as an expert. And I said we'd do it in the next podcast, uh, but the conversation with Ryan about the most underrated and overrated teams in the Western Conference based on preseason projections ate up almost all of our time. So it is on the agenda for this podcast. Before I get to that, I do want to give a shout out to our friends at Republic Jet Center. There's a reason you fly. You choose to fly privately into the New York metro area in particular, and that's to avoid delays. Uh, so when if you're flying into New York City, Republic Jet Center in Farmingdale, New York, should be your only choice. I know everybody goes into Teterboro, White Plains. Those are the popular choices. And uh, because of that, you easily get backed up. You're circling, can't get in, can't get out. Uh, that's not why you fly private. If you choose Republic Jet Center, you'll experience all the reasons why you're flying private in the first place. Not only can you land and take off on time, but getting to the city can be as quick as a 12-minute helicopter ride. Teterboro, White Plains, can't do that for you. And uh, RJC can with their white glove concierge service. They'll gladly arrange uh, a helicopter or limo, whatever you need uh, while you're chilling in their brand new, they have a brand new 100,000 square foot facility. It's got snacks, beverages, flat screens. Uh, you can enjoy yourself waiting while they line up the car. If you've never flown private, 
uh, just find out what it's all about. Maybe worth your while. Uh, maybe affordable for you. Uh, go check out www.republicjetcenter.com. And for those who are, who are already part of the private jet set, uh, mention this ad and RJC will provide a discount on your refueling cost. Because as you know, if you fly private or if you have your own jet, uh, I know that sounds kind of hoity-toity, but uh, it's the, the refueling cost is what it's all about. And RJC will take care of you on that. Okay, so I don't know if this disclaimer is necessary or not, but I'll give it anyway, because in talking about all this, I'm not trying to be salty. I'm not trying to be the grumpy old guy on the porch. Uh, you know, it was better back in my day. I don't believe in, in any of that. But having been around, uh, I think it's fair to look at where we've progressed and where we haven't. And in any event, I, I'm, I don't pretend to be an expert on who is and isn't an expert. I'm answering it because a listener asked and because I feel like he was asking in large part because of, of a clarification. So I'm just answering the question and I'm flattered that someone asked. Uh, I'm also just offering what I look for or what I believe the ingredients are for someone to be viewed as and labeled an expert. And I don't know that there's a specific formula or resume someone has to have, even by my standards. I've actually never thought about trying to define it because it's one of those things I can just tell. You have a conversation with somebody or you hear somebody talking about the game or you read what they've written and and I can tell. Um, and a lot of it is understanding there's a lot that we don't know. There's a lot of variables. When somebody gets exact, when somebody gets says this is the way it is, this is the definitive, then I recognize that they are not uh, as attuned to the game as they're pretending to be. I suspect it's like veteran NBA players who have someone suggest a new wrinkle, you know, how to fix their shooting form or an out-of-bounds play or uh, whatever it might be. And they can instantly recognize that the person suggesting the wrinkle doesn't understand how the NBA game really works. Because if they did, they'd know that the suggestion doesn't work. So we will dive into that, uh, although I don't know how much time we'll spend on it because I don't know how many of you care. I know at least one of you does. And I, just for the sake of clarifying on the previous conversation we had, I feel like it's valuable to... Uh, anyway, um, enough enough of the, the prologue. Um, we are going to spend more time and reluctantly on all the lists that have merged, emerged in the last week or so uh, that have inspired various levels of outrage. ESPN's, the top 100 players projected for this coming season. Uh, I think Bleacher Report had a top 50. Uh, a number of other outlets have also, not just ESPN, have picked their top 100 players in the league right now. Uh, and as I said, you know, they've, They've inspired various levels of outrage because, well, because that's exactly what they are meant to do, which is where my reluctance in talking about them comes from. I feel like a stooge for getting into this because I don't know if there's any other point to them than that. So as much as it grieves me that Bleacher Report, an outlet that I work for, would have Isaiah Thomas listed 47th, I believe it was, on the top 50 all-time players behind George Gervin. And I don't know, there was a number of other guys. I stopped looking. Once I, once I saw Isaiah that low, and then I saw Gervin, and I don't know, I'm sure Anthony Davis, or you know, there's other guys uh, listed ahead of him. As soon as I saw that, I stopped looking at it because it just made me sad. Maybe a little angry, maybe a little sad. It, I, I assume whoever made the list uh, knows Isaiah Thomas more for being the guy who killed the CBA and coached the Knicks and uh, being on NBA TV. I don't know, but they, they didn't see him play. They certainly didn't see him win championships. 
So that you would have a George Gervin. George Gervin wouldn't even put himself ahead of Isaiah Thomas on the list. And this kind of gets to the heart of what I want to talk about when it comes to these lists. I, I don't want to debate how misinformed or misleading any of them are or you know where guys are listed because that's, that's kind of the easy, low-hanging fruit. That's why they're made for get us to talk about them, to click on them, and I refuse to play that game because ultimately it doesn't mean anything. Like that list, ESPN's, it, how they order all these apple oranges and kumquats, taking players from different positions on different teams and saying, this guy's better than this guy, it's, it's pointless. There's, there's no way that you can, find, you, can, you can come up with a formula or a definitive way to assess these players fairly and make those kind of calculations. Not possible. Not possible. Or at least, I'll put it this way, if you found a common formula and you applied it to every player in the league, then you wouldn't have the descriptive explanations for why players are in the various places. And that brings me to what I really want to talk about, which is how these these lists are composed and why it's an insult that the exercise is even allowed. And look, again, I get it. I get why it's done. Bleacher Report built their platform on lists, on this very essence of sport, getting people to debate about their opinion versus someone else's. It's the heart of sports. I get it. But for all of the evolution that we've had, in the media, the ways in which we can tell stories, the ways that we can easily tell stories, not having to be on TV, the, the, the use of video, uh, we, should be, we, we should evolve with it. And I feel as if we're not. We're going backwards. So, and here's my general take on providing a product for consumption, regardless of price. Make it worthwhile. Yeah, the internet's free. The lists are free, but shouldn't we still be shooting for some level of quality? I'm still asking for your time, which is a very valuable commodity for you to spend, or you're asking me to spend on something that I am going to consume. I just, the world as I see it in general is, and this is where, you know, the old grumpy man maybe kicks in, but. I feel like we're being overrun by too many hollow promises and too much junk, largely because there are so many people fighting for that entertainment space. And it's so easily to get into the entertainment space. And now we're all crabs in a bucket. But as I see it, that's upon us to raise our own bar. And it's not an excuse. Uh, example. I was on a United flight recently that offered free TV and Wi-Fi service with a charge, the latter with a charge. Sweet, I thought. I can watch the Saints and Cowboys. This is on a Sunday night. Watch the Saints and Cowboys. I can get some work done by being online at the same time. This is going to be a good flight. Only that's not what I got. I got glimpses of the game in two-second bursts mostly a blank screen, followed by a blank screen with a message on the bottom that read, due to normal aircraft movement, channel is temporary unavailable. Now, keep in mind, I was seeing that message for about two and a half hours at various times. Every 30 seconds, I'd get two seconds of TV, followed by 20 seconds of blank screen, followed by 15 seconds of due to normal aircraft movement, etc., etc. First of all, I don't even know what that means. I mean... I'm in an aircraft. It's up in the air. Obviously, it's moving. It wasn't like we were hitting a lot of turbulence. So putting the excuse that the TV wasn't working because of normal aircraft movement uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't make it. Now, maybe I should have just turned off the TV and cracked a book, which is what I would have done if there was no TV screen and no Wi-Fi promise. In fact, on the flight back, there was no TV. Uh, I was fed up with the with the Wi-Fi, so I just read. Mm, that was a happy puppy. But here's the thing. The glimpses of action, the promise of what I could see, 
along with my own personal healthy curiosity about Dak Prescott, Teddy, Bridge, Teddy Bridgewater, and the potential of the, the Saints and the Cowboys, kept sucking me in. I kept checking the TV screen, hoping against hope that the problem was truly temporary and due to normal aircraft movement and would resolve itself. The, the Wi-Fi was just as big of a tease allowing me to get to the point where I could log into my United account, could submit my credit card information, thereby making me think it would eventually connect and I'd have internet access. Uh, Truth be told, I was able to, as soon as I landed, I saw that I got charged for the Wi-Fi, but uh, no, never actually connected. Spent nearly the entire flight waiting for one or the other, TV or Wi-Fi to work, and, and hating myself for wasting my focus on a, something I give my kids a hard time for being too consumed by, which is video content, and B, hoping services that more often than not are flawed would this time for magical, some magical reason, deliver. So that's a little bit of a rabbit hole we went down. But my point being, look, don't promise me something. Don't offer me something. And then not be able to deliver me something that's satisfying or worthwhile. And it's the same with these damn lists. It's a bit like going back to a restaurant where you had a bad meal and ordering the exact same thing with the thinking that surely they won't screw up the same meal twice. Yes, yes, in all likelihood they will. So it's it's on me that I look at these lists. But I keep thinking, come on, it's there's going to be a better rhyme or reason. This one's going to be better. I don't know. I just, you know what? Probably my fault. It's my fault. But don't, don't, don't tease me with that. And I don't think I'm alone. You guys probably get sucked into the same thing and don't feel good about it afterward. And some of that, the, the restaurant analogies, a little bit more with my whole United thing. I mean, it's bad enough that you're going back to the same restaurant, right? And, as I said, in this analogy, United is the restaurant. But this, but in this case, look, I fly the effing friendly skies enough that the, perk is, that the perks for all of my patronage outweigh going to an airline where I have no status. Although, if everything was equal or an airline offered to grant me the same status with them to get me to switch, I'd seriously, seriously consider it. And know that I fly a lot, and I am very loyal. So I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. In case any Alaska JetBlue or JetSuiteX executives are, are, are listening, and no offense, Delta or American, but based on my friends who've been flying you as much as I have United, it sounds as if I'd be worse off than I am now. So uh, JetBlue, uh, Alaska, Virgin, JetSuiteX, uh, I'm available. I'm I'm. I'm potential free agent here. And as I said, in all of this, the truth is I should know better. I know one definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And most days, I don't. If something isn't working, I move on. But every now and then, I get sucked back in and I can't help myself. It's just this morbid curiosity. And that's, that's what it is with these lists. Because, and no offense to anybody who puts them together, I, I, at one point in my career, either participated or I had to put them together early on in my career. And it was the same thing. Like, I was putting them together. I was the guy who was putting the list together at a time when I was far less qualified to do it than I am now. They're junk, pure and simple. They're false advertising at their, at their finest. And they're worthless. It's false advertising because they suggest that there is a basis for this order. But how can there be a basis when, and I don't mean to bang on ESPN because they're not the only ones, but in the case of ESPN's top 100 players, they say it's a projection of who they think the top 100 players are going to be this season. But 80% of the explanations are about what those players have done, and there's a healthy part of it in which they're explaining why they might not actually live up to their particular rank. Now, this, by the way, is the ninth year my 
ESPN, my former employer, has put out this list, which means that they started doing it before I left. And I don't recall participating. But if I did, it was in the most cursory way possible. I was an ESPN, the magazine guy. My stuff would appear on ESPN.com. But we were, at that time, considered two separate entities. And if I did participate in ESPN.com, and I feel like I, I did on a couple of things, where they'd, they'd have 25, 30 of us, all of us listed as experts. And uh, come on. But in any event, uh, all they asked was for me to submit, submit a list of names. There wasn't any discussion. There was no debate. There was just a list, and they were collated with all the other submitted lists. And again, what I remember is that it was a dot-com production and there was a whole list of people identified as experts or insiders. Now, this is more about me. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. And it's my podcast, so uh, you're you're probably learning more about me. If you just wanted straight news, go to the BBC. When it comes to my work, my definition of being a good teammate may not be the same as everyone else's. When it comes to working with my editors and producers and bosses, I'm open to input, criticism, happy to share whatever plaudits the work might draw. If it's offering what I've learned about chasing stories to colleagues or anything else from my years in the business, I'm happy to do it. I don't really like to. Uh, to spend social time with other writers and reporters. I just, I mean, I've, I've had friends and that's always been awkward for me because we're in competition. And I met you because, in most cases, because of the job, not because of some personal interaction. And, I, and in some ways I envy. I see guys, I see people in the business all the time who work for different outlets and I see them talk about each other as best friends and all of that. I've just never been able to get there. So, uh, but if it comes to somebody that I'm working with, if I can help them and somebody, and, and if they're working on a story, need me to get them quotes from a player or coach I have access to that they may not, I have no problem doing that. Uh, if it's telling them how I've gone about building my career or, you know, my secrets to, digging out stories or developing sources or what I might happy to do all of that. Uh, especially when it comes to people that are, that I'm, we work for the same outlet. We work, we're on the same team. More than happy to do that. I'm really reluctant to take quotes and have other people do that for me because there's so much that I gain from seeking out. And this goes just with information, stats, whatever it might be. I discover a lot along the way and it changes potentially my view of the story. So, uh, and it's also in going to talk to somebody about a story, I'm developing a relationship, cultivating a relationship. And, uh, and then when I write the story, I'm responsible for everything in it is the way I look at it. And if I'm getting quotes from somebody else, got to make sure they're in the proper context. It just, I never feel I've done it. I, you know, there's times where it's necessary, but I've never felt comfortable doing it. And I certainly don't feel comfortable at all uh, aggregating my view of the game, however it may be, or my assessment of players with somebody else's. It's, again, I don't know what the overall purpose is. You want to know how I see guys and how I see the game? Okay, that's what you're getting. If, we're going to put together 25, a, a panel of 25 so-called experts. Uh, first of all, um, well, I guess we should, we should address the request on Twitter 
about what I think someone has to be to be considered an expert on the NBA. First of all, I don't believe you have to have played in the league. And I say that first because the listener suggested that as a prerequisite. And that's not because I didn't play in the league. It's because I know, having been around the league, that it's a signifier of nothing. All players know certain things that the average person does not know. They've experienced the game firsthand at a very rare, unique level, though not in a way from, again, my experience, that someone can't understand through a combination of comparison and close observation. How do I know that? Because I've tested it over and over again about what I see in the game and talking to people who are in the game, players, coaches, etc. And if my observation, with no input from anybody else, is accurate. And I consistently do that because I'm not always right. I don't always have it, but I've got a pretty good sense of how things are work, uh, how things work. And even to the point now where uh, coaching my kids, I, I know what their jump shot form has to be. I know when their shots are off and why they're off and how to correct it. Now, does that mean that I shoot better than them at this stage? Whew, not, not, not every day. And I, at this point, most days, they're better shooters than I am. That's the harsh reality. I've said it. I don't know if I said it here. Uh, my wife just did a triathlon. I may be, for the first time, I may be the worst athlete in my family. That's a humbling place to be. I still think I'm the best coach, though. Maybe that's, that's the transition that I'm making. Anyway, enough about, uh, about that. So, players. Um, this may sound strange, but having played the game, doesn't mean that someone understands the game, even if they've played it at the professional level. It means they have the requisite physical ability to play at the professional level, and they know enough about the game to utilize that physical ability. And there's a whole lot more to the game than that. The number of players who don't grasp the game beyond what their assigned duties are is much greater than you might imagine. I've been around way too many players who have a very limited scope of the game. It's really shocking at times. They see it strictly through the eyes of someone playing. And while that gives them firsthand experience that is relatively rare, if that's all someone is working with, I'm not sure that that is better than someone who is steeped in the game from pure X's and O's or even next-level analytics. It's still one prism through which you're seeing the game. And that's not expertise. That's expertise in one particular vein. Truth is, I don't have a set list of characteristics someone must have to be an expert because it, it requires understanding a lot of different aspects of the game and the league. And for the record, someone who is a college basketball expert isn't necessarily someone who understands the NBA. They are truly different games. I've covered the college game and I understand how it differs from the pros. But I'd want to spend some quality time at games, college games, and talking to players and coaches before I'd claim any sort of expertise about the college game again. This I can tell you, massively inferior product. If you don't know that in watching the two games, we don't need to talk anymore. I got it. I know where you're coming from. Uh, and that's why I have a hard time watching it. To be clear, after spending several years doing a daily radio show, I'm in the process of reacquainting myself with certain aspects of the NBA that I simply didn't have time to stay up on. A lot of it's personnel, more like coaches, GMs, etc. But it's also aspects of the game and the way it's being coached and the talent coming in and how teams are utilizing it. Game has changed. James changed in a lot of ways. And that's the thing. Experts aren't granted tenure. The game and the league are constantly evolving. And what may have been true 10 years ago isn't necessarily true today. That's probably the best lesson that I received from moving away from the game, still covering the NBA, still writing about it, but not being steeped in it the way that I had previously, is uh, I developed some holes in my game. I'll be honest. There were some things that 
uh, were tried and true while I was covering it or last when I covered it that no longer applied. And I had to learn that harsh lesson on a number of levels, reporting about it even, the dynamics of that. Um, so here's what I'd say about what it takes to be an expert on the NBA. Well, I don't think you must have played in the league. I do think you must have competed as an athlete in some form or fashion and had some sort of success. I don't see the value in being someone who rode the bench on their high school team and, and their high school team never won anything. It's better than nothing, but we're talking expertise, right? I learned the other day that my uh, FS1 colleague, Colin Cowherd, was both the starting quarterback and point guard on his high school varsity teams. To my knowledge, Colin never competed at the collegiate level. Uh, I know Jason Whit- Whit- Whitlock, another one of my FS1 colleagues, played football at Ball State. Doug, Doug Gottlieb's collegiate basketball career is well known. I enjoy talking any and every sport with all three because they get the essence of what sport is about, regardless of the specific sport. And I can tell when someone understands competition from having been expected to deliver firsthand, to execute, to figure out when the game plan unravels, to be one of the key players on a team that is successful. And all the things that you learn from that, how instinctively you have teammates you trust and ones you, you try to give them, you know, you know what their, their limitations or capabilities are and you utilize them within that. doesn't mean you'd like them any more or less. It's just you have a sense of what they can and can't do and you make decisions. Or how a really good opponent makes you execute in a way a lesser opponent doesn't and that uh, and pushes you to expand your game and that if you can expand your game, that's how you get to the next level. If you can't, then you're stuck. Or how bad habits can develop from too much success how scoreboard isn't always a reflection of how well you play or how setbacks, losses can actually be vital building blocks. What you learn from them that you can then take later and might inspire uh, success. How you can hate a teammate or love a teammate for who they are as a person and feel entirely different about them when you're on the field or court. There's a lot you can extrapolate from playing at one level and then either competing or just observing the next level if you understand what the rudiments of success are and if you ask questions, if you explore what's different. Generally, what I found is speed of the game, You're the, the timing of everything. You have to be able to do everything. You have to be able to cognitively uh, recognize and react to everything faster. Now, we now have, by the way, not only a whole legion of writers and reporters who have not played, don't fit that first uh, prerequisite that I suggested, um, and who analyze the game as if they were dissecting it with tweezers and a microscope, which is all good. But we also have a legion of fans who love digesting the remnants of their autopsy, as well as executives in respect to sports who relish the same autopsy. We have this whole subculture. And not to say there's anything wrong with it. In fact, probably smart when I, when I think about it is if you're going to get into the microanalysis and you're appealing to people who are, haven't played the game, but they just, their, their way into it is through microanalysis, not, not feeling the game as I, I think I might put it, but just seeing the game, that's a much greater audience. So it makes sense. It makes sense that that there are plenty of people that have uh, are attracted by that. In any case, um, it, that's passed off as expertise at the highest level, even greater expertise. And I think it's kind of moving back now, but there was definitely a period where analyzing game was considered. Uh, expertise above, well above and beyond having actually played the game. And as I said, playing the game doesn't make you an expert. But if you've played the game and you understand the game and you understand the dynamics, that is for me. There's, there's just 
a host of intangibles that breaking down videotape doesn't apply to. The statistics don't apply to. Because uh, the intricacy of the examination is impressive. I mean, I, I, I like checking it out. I like somebody taking some tape of a play or a situation and getting into all the nuances. What I know about execution in sports, sport, it's that it's, it's rarely precise. There are way too many moving parts and too many elements beyond any one person's control. Super simple example just from this past weekend of a sport that I'm not generally, <laughs> I, I, I watch some of, college football. Northwestern playing Wisconsin, trailing 6-3. If a 17-yard punt return would have put the ball near midfield, it gets called back because of a penalty, a push in the back that actually didn't spring the ball carrier but drew a flag anyway. It was, it was an inconsequential penalty as far as affecting the play, but nonetheless it was called, and so it had great consequences. Uh, but as a result, Northwestern starts on its own 16. The ensuing play, the quarterback is sacked. He fumbles because of the proximity to the end zone. Only six, seven yards. Ball squirts in the end zone. Wisconsin lineman dies on it. And Wisconsin has a now has a 14-3 lead. That's how sports work. Now, if you want to break down all of the elements on a particular play, why he was sacked, or what was done wrong when it came to the, uh, the run, the punt return. You can. You ultimately can, for sure. But it's all connected. And there's a bunch of things that happen that can't be anticipated in any one situation. It's, it's human error. And human error is always a big part of it. And here's the thing. This is the thing with sports. And even the most precisely executed plays, I guarantee you there are mistakes made that are overcome. There's no perfectly executed play. And on the other hand, there are excellent decisions made to combat that play that go for naught. That happens on every play. My point, my general point, it's an inexact science. So don't try to make it one. So that's one. I don't care what level someone's played at. I care what their experience was playing at whatever level they played. You can look at some of the great coaches in a variety of, of sports. They didn't necessarily play in, in their league, but I defy you to find one who wasn't a standout in some way at whatever level they did reach. Going pro is about having the requisite physical gifts along with the mental toughness and understanding of the game. If you were never a competitive athlete, you're just one, you're one credit short in my book. Again, this is my book. I also believe in Malcolm, Glad Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours theory. If you have never worked the beat of a team in a sport, I don't think you can be an expert. Now, obviously, if you worked for a team, that counts too. I'm just saying from a media person's perspective, so what does that mean for a beat writer? Well, just to show you my appreciation for analytics, let's say a typical season is 196 days, which includes training camp. And let's say on game days, a beat writer spends seven hours talking to or observing a team, and that counts shoot-around, pregame, game, locker room, press conference. And let's just, let's make it four hours on practice days. And this, by the way, also shows you the subjectivity of analytics. The sorts of estimations that I'm making right now are the estimations that are at the heart of every number you've ever consumed on basketball reference. Somebody's watching games, they're watching videotape, and they are making the same assessments, the same numerical assessments that I'm making. As the kids say, trust. All right, so 82 regular season games plus six preseason games. That's 88 games total times seven hours. 
That gives us 616 hours. 98 practices times four hours is 392 hours. That, if my math is correct, gives us a total of 1,008 hours a season. So, going back to the 10,000-hour theory, which is to become an expert, proficient at anything, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, book Outlier, suggests that you need 10,000 hours of experience. So that's a little over 1,000 hours a season, which means roughly a decade of working a beat gets you to expert level in that regard. Uh, If you add off-season national team coverage or playoffs, you probably can slice at least two or three seasons off. So in any event, hard to imagine from my experience, anyone with less than five years of beat work Uh, it's hard to imagine them being anything close to uniquely insightful when it comes to the game. Uh, Former players who have never had conversations with anyone other than players, who have never had substantive conversations with anyone else in their organization, I'm not sure I'd fully trust their opinions on everything when it comes to the game either. And for non-players or team personnel, I don't care how much you read or how much film you watch or games you watch or time you spend interviewing subjects in the sport. There is an intrinsic value in being around an organization and watching firsthand how it operates. Because here's the thing about the game and the teams that play it. They're organic. They're a living organism. And how it grows, how it gets stronger, what makes it sick. I'm serious. There's only one, to learn, only one way to learn all that, and that's by being around it and observing on a daily basis. There are teams that start out, they're well, they're healthy, their chemistry is good, their locker room, their, their vibe is sound. And then events occur, uh, a cancer is discovered, and they become ill, and they fail. Now, once you've done that, once you've been, you've watched a team, or this is why it's got to be multiple years, because generally if you've covered a team for multiple years, you're going to see it go through the good times and the bad times. You're going to see it get healthy, and you're going to see it get sick, and you're going to see the dynamics that cause those two things and the different dynamics that can cause that. Once you've done that, you know what to look for when you look at another team. But if you've never done it, then you don't really know what to look for. You may be relying on your own personal experience on what makes your family dynamic, healthy, or sick. And some of that relates, but some of it doesn't. And if you're relying solely on what people tell you in talking to teams, then you're susceptible to, one, being misled, which happens more today than ever before. Uh, Or someone who their viewpoint is is skewed. They have a skewed understanding of what works and what doesn't. And this may come as a shock to some of you, but not everyone working in the league knows what they're talking about. They act as if they do because that's part of keeping their place in the league. But think about where you work. Does everybody know how your business works? Or are there people who just know how to do their job? And that's about it. If you ask them about somebody else's job, you'd be shocked at like, Dude, you've got no idea what what their responsibilities are or what it takes to do that job. Those are the players who don't qualify as experts that I was referring to earlier. And there's no shame in that. For all we know, there is attention, their attention is on other things more important to them, and rightfully so. Being a mother or father or brother or sister, pursuing some other passion or interest, maybe even another field. It could be a dozen reasons. We're just, this again is all in the context of who do we trust in calling them an expert? I also believe you have to have spent some time around teams or people who have reached the mountaintop, who have won a championship. For without observing them and what they do, can you really know what is required to be successful? Can you tell the difference between what leaves a team short, what a team doesn't have, and what they must have? And again, talking to them doesn't necessarily provide all the answers. In some cases, they don't know exactly what made them successful. They're too wrapped up in chasing their goal to also observe themselves. A few reflective ones may be able to. And if you find one, you hold on to them and you listen to them whenever you can. 
but that's not everybody. That's a rare talent. So I know all of this may be a little more maybe undefined than my guy on Twitter had hoped for, but I wanted to answer the question. And so I believe I have. That does it for this episode of Buker Friendless. Again, subsidiary of Buker and Friends, part of the United Recast Network. Uh, please rate the show uh, on iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. Just hit the stars and uh, please leave us a comment. Let us know how we're doing, what we could do better. Happy to hear that. And if you'd like to be eligible to win some prizes, then screenshot that review and send it to at Buker Friends and you will. In the next podcast, I will catch up once again with Will Blackman, an NFL vet, Super Bowl champ, and we will get into what we are seeing with the Buffalo Bills. Surprise, have they taken a step forward? Pittsburgh Steelers finally get off the schneid. I'm really intrigued by everything that's going on in the AFC North, not just because I grew up in Cincinnati and I'm misbegotten Bengals fan Uh, but there's also talk about Brady finally showing his age that's in the next podcast for now as always thanks for listening It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.